0: a word to the wise we are an explicit podcast tackling content with motherfucking adult themes as well as entering (laughs) spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us we have read through chapter 11 of dark age the fifth installment of the red rising series by pierce brown
1: This is Cross. And I'm PJ. And I'm questioning why PJ swore in the intro, because that kind of counters the point of giving a warning. We are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club.
0: You know, Crossland, this is the second episode of the fifth book of the series that we're tackling. I don't think people are jumping in at this point, so... You know, I figured I'd I'd play with it a little bit. I don't know, man. I, don't I know. can it, take it out if you need me. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: no, know, I think I think it's I think it's good to leave it in. We can we can leave it in. We don't need to dub over it or go go aggressive or anything like that. Uh, no, fuck, fuck, like, fuck, I, fuck, 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 fuck. Today <laughs> is our second episode covering Dark Age by Pierce Brown, and we are going to tackle chapter seven through eleven. Mm-hmm. PJ, what are you drinking? Or what would you like to finish your sentence? I'm sorry.
0: Uh, nope, I'm going to talk about what I'm drinking. <laughs>
1: All right, so cool.
0: I got a recommendation from Sharkbait on our Patreon Discord server to drink a lavender gimlet. I had a lavender plant outside, and I also had a rosemary plant, so I put some rosemary in there too. And I already had some rosemary simple syrup. So what I did: took two ounces of gin, three quarters of an ounce of lime juice. Half an ounce of rosemary, simple syrup, half a sprig, each of rosemary and lavender, shook it all together, garnished it with a lime wheel and pierced the lime wheel with the other halves of the sprigs that I took from both rosemary and lavender, and then served it over a fancy, like spherical ice cube and took a picture of it in the lavender plant. I really like how it turned out. It's delicious. Shark bait. This was an awesome idea. This was so good. It this sounds so amazing. Good. I say it was, I was as if it's all gone. I've got about half of it left. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus
1: Christ. Part we of, were preparing part of the problem for here, a long time. We were preparing for a long time, and uh, Tim Olson jumped in and was having a conversation with us for a hot second, and we had to talk about when you know a bunch of other things were happening. So uh, it just kind of went on Yeah, so as it just,
0: does. I was just sipping.
1: Last week, it was Andrew who jumped in, in the middle yeah. of our recording.
0: <laughs> yeah, he did. he did. Oh, man. Yeah, um, a, I am following type. that up with a very, very good beer. It is the 2019 Vintage of Morning Delight from Toppling Goliath. It is an imperial oh, stout fuck. brewed with maple syrup and coffee. Um, bourbon barrel aged, I believe. I'm pretty sure it's bourbon barrel aged. And uh, so the maples. So, so the maple came out so strong. It, it's, it's mellowed a ton. The maple has really overtaken the coffee at this point, but it is it is drinking so well right
1: now. Got it. So it's a drink now kind of a thing.
0: I mean, right now, as in like two years after I got the bottle.
1: Okay. Okay. So you it's have an the bottle.
0: It's a 20. Got it. Bottle.
1: Got it. Okay. Yep. Uh, all that I was going to say is that uh, Tim Olson, or not Tim Olson, Tim Pearson, one of our patrons and one of our longtime friends, gave my parents a bottle in response for the wine bottle and you know kind of stuff for us to share variously just shipping stuff back with uh, Bing when he came back and one of them was a morning delight because he was like oh, I'm not going through all that I have so
0: probably the same one you should tell them to okay to give it a all shot right. it's 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 well really they're not
1: they're gonna not gonna drink it without me because I requested that they don't
0: so. <laughs> well that's fair so yeah you've got <laughs> this to look forward to
1: very very excited that sounds amazing
0: this is an annual release by one Goliath, there's a very limited number that they produce. It's a lottery to have the opportunity to buy two bottles. And it's so good. It's so good. That's crazy. So, yep. What about and you? And what have you got? Garrett, Iowa.
1: I am sadly kind of boring because I didn't have quite enough time. I was finishing up the last session. We did kind of shift our recording schedule a little bit. We finishing up the last session of a writing class. And so I had to get some of the various edits and stuff like that in for writing. And so I didn't have – and went on a walk, usual kind of exercise routine. So I didn't have a whole lot of time. I wanted to make the lavender gimlet. I will probably do something similar. I might do the other – the martini that was suggested Next week but i am having a gin and tonic this week the usual stuff usual suspect that i've been having for the last couple times the elderflower tonic that i made which is uh, again diabolically good and the end of days barrel aged gin which is unstoppable as mentioned before yeah it's just it's incredible to follow that up i'm having a Beer from Edward Teach, which is a local brewery here, called the Pontist Double IPA. It is a double dry hopped IPA with Eldorado and Amarillo hops. I know what you're thinking, PJ, and you're like, "Those are Amarillo. two of my least favorite hops." I like well, Eldorado at the really least. Amarillo, okay, Amarillo, generally my least favorite hop as well. I don't know what it is about. There are two breweries down here that can actually brew with it, and it's incredible. But they're the only two that I've ever liked beer brewed with amarillo hops.
0: Ever uh, you've you've liked fad from uh, fad was okay. Um, these are good. Okay, okay, there you go.
1: But like fad was fad was very drinkable, and I think it's an acceptable beer. These are like I would go back constantly for these. So right. uh, it's it's very very citrusy. It's grapefruit. A little bit of bitter, but it's so drinkable. It's I mean, and amarillo for the most part also stops me. In my tracks, in my mouth.
0: It's just, blah. A lot of people really like that hop. The strange thing is, it's I don't know if I just poisoned everybody, like, as far as their opinions go, but all I taste is, like, not good. Like, not a good version of freshly cut grass, mm-hmm. you know? Like, that's what I get out of it. So, I don't know.
1: And, it, and it might be a less is more kind of a thing that they figured out over time. You know? Yeah, that
0: could be. That could be it.
1: Versus a, a kind of traditional hop. But I get no grass. I get no no nothing on anything good all right with that we get into last week's predictions we have two two ish here we're gonna go with the first one do ajax and Diomedes actually fight maybe in the bleeding place you said
0: nah but they do rib each other a lot they was that last week yeah they met it was last week
1: week. yeah whoops all right well this is not a prediction that comes true this week this is not they don't they don't fight or rib each other.
0: They don't really... Inter- they don't interact. They don't anymore. interact at all. Yeah, right. So um, I guess i drink. S- skip or drink. I'll drink for now, but we can still leave it on there.
1: All right. Sounds
0: good. I'm in.
1: And then the... This is one that was kicked off right, at, right off the bat. The question was, what is Operation Tartar Sauce? <laughs> and you said...
0: Those engines will be used to create a tidal wave which the forces will use (laughs) will ride into battle, maybe in a rigged-out starshell made for underwater battling. It's wrong, but the spirit of it is kind of right. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going
1: to say that we don't have the full answer here yet.
0: We know it creates a hurricane.
1: It is creating storms, yes. I think
0: I'm wrong. I'll
1: drink. I think you're also wrong. All I'm going to say is that we don't have the answer to the rigged-out starshells thing,
0: we don't. That's true. But
1: so I'm going to remove the question after this, but I want to clarify that, like, you're just wrong. OK, <laughs> fair enough. Is that a was that a good clarification? No, right, drink, motherfucker, wasn't. drink. <laughs>
0: OK, do we want to go over the last one?
1: Can we trust anyone? You asked yourself.
0: <laughs> no, and shit's going sideways, as it always does. Shit begets shit begets shit.
1: I think it you're did. right on that. <laughs> it's not but a It trust has nothing issue. to do
0: with trust. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Shit does beget shit, does beget shit, does beget shit. So, yeah, so, it's... Um, uh,
0: maybe we just push?
1: I think I think we just push. Mm-hmm. I think we'll just push on that one. Sounds
0: good. Well, actually, somebody did betray him, didn't they? Like, there was mm-hmm. some... Be-
1: Atalantia we kinda, uh, we who? Atalantia kind of back against Scorpio and, like, lied there and kind of made her own moves. As far as Geralt goes, and the, like, though,
0: like, aren't they speculating that somebody betrayed them?
1: Oh, that potentially someone did, but he wasn't even sure. Yes, I believe that was even in last week, though, when they were oh. talking about Illusia versus um, Angelia, wherever the city is that they end up.
0: Angelia, yeah.
1: Yeah. So I took a drink. You take a drink. That's a push. Okay. All right. With that, let's get into the chapters. Chapter six, Lysander Carnivores. Obviously, the chapter title is kind of referring to a number of different things, including the carnivorous plants that are all around, as well as the sort of political landscape that we see and Hypatia, the chameleon snake, but we, the the number one carnivore in the fucking room is Atalantia algrimus, a visage of beauty and terror. Her language has this kind of like very languid feel to it, almost like it can reach out and bite you just like her snake Hypatia could if you weren't too careful. Dude,
0: I want a I wanna chameleon snake. <laughs> There's so many <laughs> chameleon things. There's so many chameleon things just in this section. And by that, I mean two. Two things that shouldn't be chameleons that are chameleon-like. There's the snake, and there's the wolf cloak. Hmm. Okay. So, I think what it's saying is the peak evolution of everything is chameleon. All right. All right. <laughs> I think that's the assertion he's trying to make. Okay.
1: I I think what's really interesting, just just <laughs> from a historical standpoint even, I'm, I'm in on it, PJ. I'm in on you becoming a stealth man, and I'm in on... There being some secret conspiracy. Imagine if
0: I could be sneaky. I'd be unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. Yep. Yeah, like that. PJ, that's all you need. <laughs> that's it. That was that was the thing. It's a good call. Hypatia just from a historical perspective. <laughs>
0: you're you're gonna gonna go from there to like teaching me historical shit i'm I'm trying okay (laughs) i'm
1: trying it's 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 a very small kind of thing and i think that this is really the only way that really plays in she was a platonic scholar and so she believed in a lot of um plato's thoughts she was an astronomer and heavy 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 in mathematics she was a big deal in terms of um, a number of different philosophical and mathematical theories in the long term but i think maybe the The reason for naming here is more the sort of counselor attachment where Hypatia is kind of like the pet that gets all the whispers in in her ears for some reason. I feel like that's the connection more or less. And she was also a counselor, a a wise woman who was brought in to a variety of different senatorial chambers and debates and whatnot. So,
0: yeah, that's a tiny little bit. She takes on the uh, Sophocles role. for Yeah, but for the... As far as like... uh, Advising and making decisions based on ridiculous <laughs> shit that the snake does.
1: Kind of like Iago <laughs> yeah. from Aladdin. Yeah. Exactly. Definitely not good decisions, but they're decisions.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. But what do you make of uh, be- this? Before you yeah. go on from that, just because you brought up the term platonic, is that the same origin of the like platonic, like as in platonic friendship or platonic relationship is yeah. that based on plato yeah totally i had no idea
1: yeah welcome all right it's an extraction of plato's philosophy for platonic friends to exist and we talked about it a little bit with mather and they were they were mentioning cicero i believe and sort of some of the the context there and yeah math mather can't can't say anything right today but yeah that's totally where that comes from
0: gotcha okay yeah yeah, I don't, what do you I make re- of... I don't remember ever having a conversation about that. Hmm.
1: <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Fun. Wait, the other conversation? The conversation about Cicero? No, about Platonic. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. What do you make of the political discussions in the editions of the Falthi, the Votums, and the Carthai families into kind of this political atmosphere of the society?
0: I think the fact that there was a decent amount of arguing and Disagreeing with each other gives a lot of depth to the adversaries of this book. Instead of the sort of stereotypical look at the bad guys and how bad they are, get them. Uh, we, we get a more in depth understanding of their motivations and what makes them tick and just kind of their inner workings, which is really nice. It makes a lot of sense with having the sort of multiple point of views on opposing sides. So I guess I can't really call them a strict adversary of the book. But it just brings a level of depth to the actual fight and the actual war that's going on.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think that that is a huge, huge point with all of the various families. I think it adds a little bit more character to the society on the side of the way that these families bicker. And kind of the way that they're always going to be vying for power. You know, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet, and I don't even think I raised kind of the question here, but like Apollonius is another vector that's even posed inside of this chapter versus Atalantia. And that's another giant family here that has to be, you know, considered inside of these arguments. He's setting up a lot of dominoes that could topple one way or another.
0: And there's Julia Bologna.
1: Yep. Is absent, notably.
0: Absent and not technically or not necessarily allied by them, you know, or not allied by everybody in that room.
1: Oh, yeah. Definitely not a necessarily a positive voice for Atlantia,
0: Right. Like there's yeah. just a, there's a whole lot of complexity when it comes to who's on whose side and how many sides of this war are there. Mm hmm.
1: That's. That's very true, especially all of the different angles that there are inside of this conflict. I, I can't help but agree. And I think about it all the time.
0: It's so it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I hope this war goes on forever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> How do you feel about the way that the core mocked the death of Romulus?
0: Oh, man, that was strangely like I was surprised by my own feelings on it. It was strangely infuriating. I guess it makes sense, and I really shouldn't care that much, but sort of the idea that gold represents honor and respect kind of got thrown out of the window there, but Lysander has been talking about that forever. We've seen it not be true, so I shouldn't be as surprised as I am, but, man, like it it was really upsetting, strangely.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Especially on this reread, it hit me as like this sort of moment where it's like, you know what? Lysander has some points here. Like, Lysander is definitely correct in his sort of assumptions about the core golds. And not even assumptions, his knowledge of the core golds and the way that they behave. And Romulus was an iron gold. And the way that they kind of treat him as this sort of vile thing makes sense in one aspect. It makes sense in the fact where he betrayed them because he ultimately did turn his backs against them, given the information he had at the time. But it also... It kind of hurts as a realization that their opinion of this character that we got to know fairly well in the last book is basically the fuck is that dude? Like, we don't give a shit. He's dead. He killed himself. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. that's that is frustrating. I agree with you. Strangely infuriating, without a doubt. Yeah. So this is an interesting quote that I really appreciate. It's Diomedes pitching himself to the group of administrators underneath the dictator atalantia and diomedes is kind of standing up for himself and saying rather atalantia addresses diomedes and says these are not injurious queries diomedes if i don't know how strong you are why would i choose you for a dancing partner and Di- diomedes responds because all others are taken and the song creeps upon crescendo man brilliant writing incredible way to kind of lay out the scene as it stands just Fantastic stuff.
0: Yeah, I agree. I do think it's less him trying to convince Atalantia that she has no choice and more Diomedes kind of calling her bluff and proving that he's not a really weak tactician. Like, he's not going to give up all of his important information just because she's asking for it. I I think
1: you're right. I think that's super reasonable. As far as that sort of conversation goes... I think you're entirely correct because Adelante has proven over the course of this chapter to be an incredibly gifted—I don't want to say spokesperson, statesman, stateswoman. Rather, she she is incredibly talented and she is a gifted liar. Yeah. I, I would I would go so far to say a brilliant liar.
0: Yeah, I mean, she was pretending to be your dad for like a year or so. Mm-hmm. That's right. For three years, right? Was it three years? Yeah, whatever it was. It was. Three years. Yeah. I mean, that's. That's a tall order for a woman who's probably like forty years younger than him. Mm-hmm. How old is she?
1: I want to say she's in her mid forties. She's the youngest of the sisters. We know that a decade passed, and Aja was in her forties or fifties. So it's got to put her in like her. No, mid-40s. Aja was older
0: than that, wasn't she?
1: I think she was in her fifties. The
0: Ashlord was over a hundred.
1: Correct. Aja was at least fifty. And Atalantia is. Uh, I thought Aja between, was between 60s. Nope, at least 50. But Atalantia, according to details, between based on people's math, between 46 and 48 is the approximate age. Okay. Given okay. what we know about Moira, Aja, Gashlord, and the timeline, so that that's kind of it's Ash one of those Lord, things where it's not Ash Lord well defined.
0: But getting busy as a 60 year old. I mean, yeah, man. Yeah, man.
1: If you live to 130.
0: But also, Atalantia but. was posing as a 110-year-old man. That's a mm-hmm. tall order. Also true. Not that yeah, she's actually to impersonating him, but... No, a, right. That's the joke I was trying to make.
1: <laughs> but the imposition of power <laughs> that she made over everyone else is impressive. Oh, yeah, And I absolutely. think that, that like, gets into she, what you're saying. She
0: is... I was just trying to make a comment on her impressive lying skills. Ah, uh, yes, yes, without yeah. a doubt.
1: Yeah. Or, yeah. Or cunning talent there, ah mm-hmm. oh, man.
0: Yeah, that as fell flat as a such.
1: Bit. <laughs> well, no, I I got it. I thought it was, it was it was clever. I didn't think it was a joke fully. I thought you were just mm-hmm. being clever. Uh one of the things that I find really interesting is we're talking about kind of this bluff that she's playing. Is that she similarly calls for Diomedes to fall tomorrow with an iron rain, and he declines. And I think that this is kind of that cat and mouse game of pressure that we see between the two of them in this political political conversation stepping up to fill his place of course is seraphina and she agrees to kind of be his surrogate do you think that this is an acceptable trade in any regard and what do you think the rim back home would make of this demand and seraphina stepping up to fill it
0: what do you mean by the trade like the trading seraphina for diomedes yes trading, yeah trading a raw for a raw okay yeah i think that's totally fine i don't i don't see a problem with that at all but I think the request itself is perfectly reasonable. Um, she she makes a pretty good point with how can I, I – I don't remember if this is exactly the quote, but something along the lines of how can I trust an ally tomorrow when he won't fight for me today. It's not necessarily technically part of their agreement, but I think it's a reasonable request in that both of them gain something by teaming up. So mm-hmm. – she needs proof that he's going to be or the rim is going to be helpful. I doubt the rim would really appreciate Seraphina taking Diomedes's place, but that's not on Atalantia. That's completely on Seraphina. So I don't think that matters so much. Sure.
1: Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you on that. That is Seraphina's fault for stepping up. I think that Diomedes was kind of in his right to refuse because that was in a way that was counter pressure for Atlantia to need to step back and think about yeah.
0: it i mean it was no it was negotiation yeah like i i don't see a problem with negotiation in this respect at all but mm-hmm. at the same time i don't see a problem with denying the uh the proposed alternate terms so
1: right yeah in in all ways it could have walked away with it not being a rim deal but yeah Instead, we got Seraphina Instead, it's it's an interesting point I think to ponder on, which is why we've been here. Yeah. This is a long Lysander chapter too. It's like sixteen it's pages long, or something like that.
0: Very long Lysander. It's not quite half of the reading, but probably like a third of the reading.
1: Yeah, right. This this chapter conveys a lot in terms of the kind of pl- politics and the political speech, mm-hmm. and it's beautifully done. Right. So after that, Ajax wheels on Lysander, punching him in the face, and asks him to explain himself after he understands Lysander has been Cassius's ward for the last decade. What do you make of the two brothers and their relationship, as well as their relationship to Aja and the Grimaces? What complications do you see arising in the future, if any?
0: Well, there's obviously a very old and very um, ingrained friendship and relationship between them and with that comes a lot of trust but they haven't seen each other in a decade so that trust is kind of weak at this point um so it's holding it is holding through Lysander's explanation of why he didn't come back and and where he was and all of that but that that decade that Lysander was removed from the court golds will show its face a little bit more he's going to like he's changed he's he's diverted from the true uh, tenants i guess of the of the core golds and he's trying to fall in line more with the iron golds and what it means to actually be gold but that doesn't necessarily like fit so that's going to strain the relationship more i think and there will be some petty arguments that shouldn't matter, but I think they'll they'll kinda come to a boiling point a couple times.
1: Okay. I love that. I I think that's a great a great read on the relationships, especially as we consider the painting, which I think the painting is such a brilliant plant inside of the story where Adelante considers the dead really kind of faded and gone and basically just erases them out of this family portrait. Almost as though there may be also stepping stones to her becoming the only viable option. There, there's kind of something there. I don't know what did there what did you make absolutely of the painting.
0: Something there. Yeah. I at the same time, I I agree with you, but I can see it from the perspective of they have gone to the. We we get a lot of mentioning of, of the void. So they've gone yep. to the void, and this is this is who they are now. Like this is a portrait of now and these people are gone so they are void
1: yeah i i definitely agree with you i think in large context i wasn't saying so much that that was my point it was just a thought that i had when thinking about that is does that apply that way it reminded Mm -hmm. me in particular have you seen this is a fun literature question have you seen or read the harry potter movies books harry potter
0: series book four
1: through book four book maybe, five maybe
0: like through half of book four for okay. both of them
1: book five introduces really the sort of serious black tree the family tree with bellatrix lestrange and a bunch of other things like that and there's kind of a similar thing that happens when they die their faces on this animated family tree get like blacked out or get like crossed out because they died or they become animated can't remember what serious is blacked out though as he's removed from the family tree because he's excised because he's not a death eater like the rest of the family that reminded me of that it feels kind of like an interesting not perfect parallel but something reminiscent between the two stories okay anyway i just wanted
0: to mention Yeah. That. the way you describe that sounds similar yes <laughs> oh
1: yes n- n- quite on <laughs> well, that thing that i haven't seen and have no nothing about <laughs> mm. Mm, yes <laughs> Ajax and Atalanta pose excellent points speaking to Lysander, and I I fucking love this. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read the whole thing to you know kind of explain it a little bit, but I. Adore this for a number of reasons. We'll get into it after I read it. Still wants to be Marcus Aurelius, I suppose. We understand the war inside of you, Lysander. We always have. But that does not change that this is not the return you should have had. Not for you, not for us, not with them. You squandered yourself. You should have come back a god. Think of how I could have used that. Think how your high-minded dream could have benefited from that. And this is... A brilliant breakdown I think of of the problem that kind of exists inside of Lysander's head is that his ideals really only exist inside of his head. He doesn't actualize them. And as such, actualize sounds so bullshit in this game this capacity, but you know, he he's left being painted as this philosopher who sits in a library and thinks about things, but even Marcus Aurelius who he dreams to be wasn't just a philosopher the dude was a warrior he was a general he was on the front lines of battle he died waging war and i mean he was sick he didn't die from the battle but he died from the sickness that he got while he was out there and you know the, that's the reason that he's the most popular of the stoics is because he was a true philosopher king he really embodied it uh, and he moved and did things through actions lysander just thinks
0: and imagines so that that was a lot of stuff to to take in. But yeah, no, I just love this. Bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with towards. I, I guess it was probably towards the middle of what you were saying, but towards the beginning, first first chunk. Think of how I could have used that. Was a quote from mm-hmm. Atalantia. It's a pretty selfish way to go about making an argument for for like the benefit of Lysander, but. That's kind of something Lysander said about Andalantia from the beginning. Her relationship with him was kind of based on what she got out of it, and that was actually beneficial for him. So, I what commoditize what what did what was the term that he used in the last section? I can't remember. I don't know. But going forward from there, Lysander is primarily kind of a man of thought. More and more recently, he's becoming a man of action, though. That's new. It's still kind of true. Like in the bleeding place, he he took it upon himself to jump into the ring and stop the fighting and like announce to everybody who he was and why they why he was there. And and he's doing that more and more, you know, but, I,
1: I agree. Yeah. I think that that's out of necessity, if that makes sense. Like, it's, it's true. It's out of needing to prove himself in a certain regard. And even in the later chapters, he realizes that his beliefs tucked in libraries are almost foolhardy compared to sort of the brutality of war and the the reality of it. Yeah, I, yeah it, it's true. I think it's I think it's brilliantly written, though, this kind of expose on you, you act. I think it, I think it was something along this line a little bit later, but like you act like Lorne as though Lorne didn't crawl. I think it was Pytha who says this a little bit later. You act like. Lorne, even though Lorne would walk down a corridor and he was a living death machine, cutting everyone apart. Can you do that? Was it? Was and it? Lysander was it? Like, was no. it?
0: It was Pythag. When he was it talking was about how you need to be feared.
1: Yeah. Right. And he's like, I don't. I. I shit myself. <laughs> going down. Going. Going into the spit tube. Yeah. No. I. It's. It, it is a brilliant. He didn't. Example. Shit himself. He no. He himself. didn't actually shit himself. Right. Right. And he vomited.
0: Which is. <laughs> kind of the same thing
1: both were expected results i think it's just such a brutalization of lysander in a way where he basically gets he gets put through obstacles and is he going to go through them or is he going to try to go around them and struggle to make it through his his problems i mean it's a gets back to a core the obstacles the way marcus aurelius thing like what you gonna do man Mm mm-hmm and so then Lysander asks to fall in the Iron Reign with the rest of the Warriors of Mercury and thus pave his path as the last remaining member of House Loon. What a decision.
0: Do you think that's partially motivated by becoming a man of action?
1: I think so. I think it's him realizing that he has to. I think after being harassed and addressed in this way, he's he's kind of coming to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. That he has to earn that scar in order to be respected.
0: Right. Is, is that how you actually earn a scar being in a rain or is it, is it something within a battle that you have to do in order to earn a scar?
1: I think it's, it's definitely conflict related. It's like, I think about it and I think, I think this gets described, I think it's explained. So I'm going to shut up. Okay. But good to know that is an answer that's coming soon. Deal. Yeah. All right. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. But I I definitely understand kind of the the curiosity there. The only lean-in that I would say is Gold's had to earn scars before the Institute existed to separate themselves, so how would that be
0: done? Yeah, I'm more curious what the process of earning a scar is.
1: Ah, got it, yeah, and that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, chapter seven, Darrow, the Calm. This chapter is really interesting because it's it's very short. It's three pages. We haven't had one of these in a while, but... um, it there's kind of a meta context to it because it's so short. The calm before the storm is very short. I don't know. I I kind of read that as like a a sort of punch in the face in a way where there there isn't a whole lot of time to sit and think about things before action demands us to do something. So very little to talk about inside of this chapter. A couple of things. Uh, Severo's little monsters. They don't feel whole without him. The army may miss its mascot, but the pack misses its big brother. I've been too much a distant father of late, And the men and women are clearly worn thin as this chapter begins. The morale is very low for the entirety of the free legions on Mercury. How does this make you feel before we've kind of entered into the, the conflict at large?
0: I mean, setting aside the actual like morale aspect of it, There, there is a sense of bleakness and looming absolute desperation, but I I kind of see that as a good motivator for Dale for uh, for Darrow and the howlers kind of likening it to hunger, which drives ferocity. So I I think, I think it can be a good, like, this is our last stand. This is what we're fucking doing. Like it's now or never, we're going to, Fucking die if we don't give it our all kind of deal. Hopefully, that's kind of the way that they take it at this point. But it's also kind of interesting that both Darrow and the Reaper are shitty fathers. (laughs) 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 Uh, Maybe they are the same after all. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Hmm. (laughs) That's a funny analogy that I didn't pick up on this go round. That's a good point. Yeah, fuck. It's even in the quote
0: mm-hmm you literally read it to me
1: yeah i did fucking hell oh man but i yeah i think that's an interesting point i think it's a great point that like clearly the morale is brutally low and he's hoping that this sort of like last stand for life might do something but as we learn later it i mean not even the war chants are enough for <laughs> this shit <laughs> like oh my god <sighs> Woo. Um, speaking of this shit, (laughs) the fear Knight has impaled an entire city, leaving their corpses as a forest, a self-described forest outside. And my God, is this absolutely ferociously brutal.
0: It's pretty fucking horrifying if I, if I'm being honest about it, but describing it as a forest is a little bit over the top, right? Like a forest is what like twenty thousand trees. Have you ever seen one person impaled. There's two hundred <laughs> people. that's like an orchard at best. You've got to be a kid <laughs> <laughs> i uh
1: mm, yeah, <laughs> fine. I'm dying inside. (laughs) So we learn a little bit more about the storm gods. The fact that they're these, we we know that they're old and that they were going to take time to generate a storm. We know that it's a storm now. Now, Obviously, it's kind of in the name. You know, kind of, I thought you might put that together maybe a little bit. can I be,
0: they don't make an exact connection. There's an assumption that the storm gods are the engines that they were repairing. Is that true? Or are these different? I was going under the assumption that these are the engines that they were repairing. The engines, y-
1: yes. So they're engines, but what are they engines of? Would be the right.
0: question. The, I, yeah, but it never says, like, these are the engines we were repairing in the last section. It just says these are the storm gods and there's the assumption yeah. there but in the previous section they were referred to as engines and here they're referred to as storm gods and i'm just making sure that we've got the we're we're talking about the same things. Well they
1: they were also referred to as storm gods in the previous section.
0: Where are they now? Yes. Interesting. I missed that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. That's that's fair. That's fine. There is so much it's it's worth pointing out even. There is so much going on in the first 100 pages of this book, 150 pages even, in the f- entire fucking book. Like is chaos abound. It, and it's remarkable, it's excellent, but it's very easy to miss stuff here and mm. there. Yeah. I mean we're we're obviously taking a deep dive, but it's uh, even that. So after kind of discussing the storm gods, there's a brief parable interlaced with that about the pit vipers, and Darrow decides to pull the trigger and initiate Operation Tartarus. What were your thoughts on the parable and him kicking off kicking off the Stormy
0: Boys? The Stormy Boys. The Stormy Boys of Operation Tartar Sauce. We <laughs> <laughs> we know that there's sort of an edge that he has to balance on, much like the Pit Viper story, which is obviously the reason why he brought it up. Too early, it tips off Atlantia, and too late, it doesn't fucking matter anyway. So I, I hope he's right, but... At the same time, that parable about pit vipers is very, very dependent on instinct. Just interactions with pit vipers and taking them out with the sling blag is very dependent on just like reactions and instinct. So I'd like to think, in this moment when I was first reading it, i like to think that he was trusting his instinct and really kind of timing it properly. And it kind of seems like that works out. There's the monologue or internal monologue of Lysander later in the last second to last last chapter I don't remember what chapter but he's he's looking down and seeing the infancy of a hurricane which we know is coming from the storm gods but it seems like it's just kind of to from his perspective a natural occurrence of a, a giant storm yeah so,
1: that's chapter 10 yes
0: that is chapter okay
1: yeah, the last Lysander chapter, like you said.
0: Yeah. So I, I, I think he, as far as I can tell, he probably made the right choice. He probably made the right timing choice.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, a fantastic read on that, I I take it. Man, it is a oh what what a book. What a what a set of chapters. What a right. book. What a book. What a book, you know? Like what a what a story. With that we move into chapter eight, Lysander the Machine. This the machine. machine isn't Bert Kreischer's machine, <laughs> but it should is be. in fact. <laughs> Everyone's just going to get drunk on vodka in Russia on the tr- yeah, after I mean, then rob a train.
0: Yeah, why wouldn't you do that? Because I'm the machine.
1: <laughs> but it, it is in fact an act of militarization. And let me say that I never thought that I wanted all of these various preparations that happened to be so perfectly and described and explained to us. Descripted. But <laughs> it is nearly perfect and absolutely fucking brilliant. Yeah, it's awesome.
0: And it, it really kind of makes the idea that it's a machine that's being built and being designed, it, it, it produces that sort of feeling when we're, when we're presented with the term, the machine. And then we're seeing all the little parts of this battalion preparing. It, it really—I don't know—it made me feel things. I really liked it.
1: Yeah, could not could not agree more. This was an incredible little section here, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to bring up something, and this is pretty minor, um, and this is almost more of a question of sorts to to folks as well. So feel free to uh, leave a comment on Instagram, write us an email, what have you. Pytha here denotes herself as an equiates, which is a term for Roman cavalry. And it feels like the closest we get to a real term of superiority within the color. We have like Docker as a minority kind of thing that was addressed long, long ago in Golden Sun. But, you know, I kind of just wanted your thoughts. Do you think that that feels like it is something that could be a color being that they're equated to like a cavalry leader in a way? Like a rose
0: or Another uh, Peerless Guard? I don't think it's quite that. It seems more like a position. Sure. So, like, we, we've got the... Imperators. Yeah, Imperators. We've got the... Uh, in Darrow's case, we've got the Drakken Folks, yeah. Operators? Would that be the right right term? Operators for them? I don't know. I, I feel like there's a more specific term for that one. But it it, it feels more like a position, like Imperator. It, it kind of feels like a Praetor kind of situation. Okay, so it, it's a high position within the high part of the color, but I don't, I don't think it's a different, like different section of the color, like rose or stained or peerless scarred.
1: Okay, yeah, and and I, like I said, I think it's it's more of a it's more of a question. And I think I agree with you on the way that that aligns. It's just interesting because blue is one of those colors that we don't know what the super blue is, if that makes sense. Cobalt. Yeah, you would think. Cobalt would make sense. Hmm, okay. Thanks for that. We we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I want to just reiterate it. Python's speech to Lysander about his chasing of the Iron Gold status is, is actually something that, to me, makes him feel a little bit less honorable in a way. At least he's aware that he isn't one. That's important. But as Pytha rightly points out, you want to play the big game, fine, but you play to win. And what a smart commentary... I think that her entire point is comparing him to Lorne and saying that you have to do we need to do in order to make sure that you are you earn the status of iron gold. It really comes down to that one thing that we said earlier, and it's about action and, and taking action as opposed to sitting on the sidelines.
0: I feel like he really kind of shows his youth in this in this little sort of section. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, and I don't know if I'm muddying myself. But his reasoning and his desire are a little bit off-center. Like, he knows what he wants to be, and he knows how he wants to be perceived, and he assumes or conflates them to be the same thing when they're, they're two not necessarily opposite things, but not necessarily the exact same thing, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. I'm trying to find a better there? way to describe that. I'm trying to think yeah. of, like... I don't know, it just seems like an immature immature understanding of what an iron gold is.
1: Underdeveloped, yeah. Underdeveloped. I mean, That's a better
0: term. Less Yeah not, it's, not immature, but less uh less totally understood.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, especially when even Pytha brings up the person who's most commonly referred to as the modern iron gold that we're all very aware of, which is Lornao Argos, right? And the dude earned it. Through battle and also contemplation, like it wasn't just the fact that he was sitting there thinking, as Diomedes was kind of trained by him to think, but it was it was his actions that really made him kind of the the component of an Iron Gold that was um was kind of respected in that way. Exactly. Oh man, and they they load up into the spit tubes, or they're about to load up into the spit tubes, and God fucking damn it, if. Ajax's speech doesn't give my skin, doesn't make my skin have goosebumps like Seraphina's, and then suddenly feel cold as though it's gone goose flesh as we see all of our heroes' names read aloud. What do you make of the familiar re- rituals and the speech from Lysander's perspective? Uh,
0: f- all right. First of all, got to address this. Did, did you just use goosebumps and goose flesh as two different things? Absolutely, I did. Are they different?
1: I think of them as different. I think of, like, goose flesh as, like, cold, clammy, fear and excitement, pre the bumps, or, like, different than the bumps. But I think that they are used interchangeably, truly.
0: I always assume that it was the same thing. But yeah. in this speech, there's the names that are spoken off. And Cadis, Cadius, Harnassus, what, what's... How do you pronounce that first name?
1: Harnassus Cadis. Cadis Harnassus. Yeah. Cadis
0: Harnassus, which... Fuck his parents for naming them that, but um, <laughs> do oranges not have an elemental middle name?
1: Don't know. Don't have a good answer to that. I can't think of one. If uh, if anyone knows, send us a note. Definitely interesting. I couldn't find any in research after you wrote that in the
0: in the notes, of course. Yeah. But as far as Lysander's perspective goes, I think he has. I, I, I think it gives kind of an interesting view. We get to see this presentation. These theatrics, I guess, this Mm -hmm. ritual. Ritual is probably the better term. In kind of the same way that we see Darrow, that we see from Darrow's perspective in Golden Sun, I think. Is it Golden Sun where the first Iron Reign is? Yeah. No. Oh, yeah,
1: Golden Sun. Yep, Golden Golden Sun. Sun. I thought he said Iron Gold for some reason.
0: But the internal monologue and the understanding of what's happening is way different. Lysander talking about the human flaw that he suppresses unlike Serafina, who is absolutely shaking in, uh, in envy was a little bit more insight into the true desires of Lysander. But when Darrow was seeing this, it was, it was rage, but it was also desire. Like there, there was a lot of, a lot of feelings and it, but, it, but it wasn't like, I want to be that person that's talking. It, it was fuck that guy. And we know Darrow became that guy when he launched his own reign. But, you know, I don't know. It was an interesting, interesting perspective. I, I enjoyed the scene. Truly. It's,
1: I, I totally agree with you on the side of the Golden Sun comparison. I think that that is a brilliant thing to bring up here because they do have very different perspectives. One had a warrior's perspective and one is a philosopher's perspective on the whole thing. And... They are fundamentally different people. As much as we compared them as being similar in the last book, here's where we start to get the delineations really between the two characters, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. We do. Yeah.
1: Love it. Any other thoughts there on the iron gold component? I mean, you know,
0: I, I wish I would have grabbed the book and read through it before before really like jumping into this, just to just to do a one to one comparison, but no, at the moment I don't.
1: Okay, yeah, I think it only gets um, more intense a little bit later here, but yeah.
0: Oh, it gets very intense later. Here. <laughs> what, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Like, you're, this right, is, you're right. You're sh- right. This shit's tame.
1: <laughs> you are onto something with tame. <laughs> I I find it I found it interesting that term the term the society side uses. They, they use the same term blood red and blood red means kind of I, I feel like it means different things on different sides of the war. The so- society kind of terms it this suicide wave. How accurate do you think it really is? Do you think it's easy to step back and say that the low colors are always going to have kind of a deeper vast tide as far as it goes with soldiers marching to their deaths to fight for the Republic? But is it really the kind of suicide that they painted as
0: on an individual scale? No. No. But I think on a on a grand scale, yes. We we get the comment from Darrow during Iron Gold about the red tide, which is effectively mm-hmm. the same thing. It's just overwhelming them with bodies.
1: Even back in Morningstar. It was the Was red it tide. Morningstar? It was also Morningstar, yeah.
0: Okay. Either way, like it, it was I don't know if they use the term suicide run or like I don't know if it was even brought up at all as a suicide anything. But it was kind of inferred that way. It was like we've got the we've got way more people. They're not trained, but we can just kind of throw them at them and overwhelm them. Um, I think we even talked about it in our show,
1: where mm-hmm. I talked about oh, no, it, like no doubt we did.
0: Yeah. So like, I know, I I don't think Darrow sees this as anything but that, but probably has more flowery terms to describe it.
1: Okay, all right, so from Darrow's perspective, he would use a different term. But the societies you feel, is correct from their perspective.
0: And I, I think, really, when you boil it down, it's the same thing.
1: I feel like it's a little bit under-assumptive on the society's part to call it kind of a suicide run, if that makes sense. To not realize that those moments have done immense damage to the society. Even if there are a ton of deaths, that's really just throwing the... the, the more bodies you have in a conflict, sometimes it's all you need.
0: I think Dara uh, would just call it heavy sacrifice. Yeah,
1: of course. And, but is Darrow that not is still sociopath. suicide? Well, war is a little bit different, but I mean, I think that it's fighting, dying for a cause, you know, it versus martyrdom. Su- I, I, then, I guess, I guess, like suicide not really is,
0: martyrdom. Suicide is
1: painted as generally a selfish decision. War is kind of inherently selfish. So there's there's something there. I see where you're poking at. I'm just not. Not sure how I feel about it entirely.
0: uh, Yeah. Yeah. I think where I'm coming from is that Darrow is okay with losing a large bulk of people for the cause. Mm -hmm. But,
1: But his use of the term blood red seems to be not in a sort of suicidal rage so much as it is like going on a killing spree, right? That's how Darrow and the Howlers seem to be like Thraxa is throwing around the word and that's that's kind of that perspective and so it, that's what's curious to me is that they even think about it a little bit differently
0: okay so so we're talking about the difference between like blood red and red tide from Darrow's perspective at that point right
1: yes I'm trying to pull it away from red tide well yes so well,
0: so so that that's, the society describes kind of
1: where... yep the dis- society's blood red is a red tide from Darrow's perspective and blood red from Darrow's perspective is a frenzy
0: yeah but I think the the society or the core golds, because I don't think they're really the society at this point, are they? Society remnant, I think is how they're described. Okay. They don't have the internal communications of Darrow, so they don't necessarily know what he's talking about if they hear the term blood red. Mm-hmm. And if they, they hear the term blood red and they've heard the term red tide, They might see those as the same fucking thing and they might like the the descriptions might be talking about two completely separate ideas in general and it's just we don't know what they're like we, we don't know the inner like discussions or inner like code names for things so this is what this is what we see and it's tied to that code name this is what has happened so it's fucking suicide run i don't know
1: totally no, I, I, think, I think I agree with you. I just find it interesting that there are even two different definitions, you know, on science. And so mm. it's, um, yeah, that does make sense, especially when you paint it that way, that they they think about blood red in a different way than Darrow thinks about it because of that specific view of them appearing to be suicidal. And Darrow is, in fact, instead thinking about it as a frenzy, as a last ditch effort. Right. Or as a rage. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I just think it's an interesting
0: comparison. More perspective than anything else.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. Oh, man. And Lysander finally comes to term with what Seraphina was really after this whole time. She's been hungry for war.
0: Yeah. Yep, she is. And that fact makes the idea that she took Diomedes' place in the reign so much more terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> like, she wants to be here. Like this was for fucking goal from the jump, I feel like. He, isn't that awful? Isn't no, that strange? So cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Alright.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. I'm so
0: excited. I'm so excited to see her fighting. Hmm.
1: It's it I I also it's so interesting to me that you're you're fascinated by this. I think for me, Serafina really interestingly, and I think purposefully and intentionally reduces Seraphina a little bit to say that this is all that she's ever lived for and I think it actually paints her more similar to Belafron than Diomedes in a way you know like I think that she had this sort of edge of seeming to have a little bit more nobler intentions and now to be to kind of backtrack and be like oh you're a 16 17 year old who's about to waltz into this like Okay, she so it's naivete that was propelling you, in a way.
0: I feel like she's a little bit smarter than that. And I well, think yeah. she can have she's multiple a motivations, but yeah. the one that's prevailing in this moment is her desire for war. I don't think right, that takes right. away from her, from her other motivations. It just puts them lower in the priority queue.
1: There is definitely a number of quotes about regarding youthfulness and war that are not coming to my mind right now from Winston Churchill, but it feels like one of those probably embodies Serafina. It'd be really great if I could actually recall the quote.
0: Youthfulness. Whoops. That's a, that's a word. What what do you mean? I'm just fucking catch a predator.
1: <laughs> oh my god. You you will never <laughs> Never let that up. No, because it's so, fucking true. It's uh, it's funny,
0: but yeah, I wasn't even I, planning. Uh, I was planning on dropping that, but you're bringing up youthfulness. She's sixteen or seventeen years old. All she wants is war. But she's grabbing at Lysander's dick.
1: Is she grabbing at Lysander's dick
0: or is as Lysander a reaching? Ploy to get him arrested.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and with that, chapter nine. <laughs> Darrow <laughs> Angelia and we are once again introduced to a beautiful mess created by Alice Al-Ra and we once again haven't met the man but we finally kind of get some of the pieces of his story here which I think is fascinating he's uh, an exiled Olympic knight he had to go was exiled to the rim, of course, and he is maybe a bit of the sadist. He didn't actually go to the rim, sorry. He was he was between the rim. He was in the asteroid belt, the Kuiper belt. Um maybe a bit of a sadist.
0: Fuck if that's not an understatement <laughs> at this point. <laughs> oh a oh. bit of a sadist. Yeah. He's
1: really good friends with Brutus Our too.
0: Vlad the Impaler was a bit of a sadist is basically <laughs> what you just said.
1: Well yeah, may- yeah. maybe maybe. Speaking of the sadism, the field of bodies that Atlas leaves is absolutely terrifying to walk through from Darrow's perspective. Of course, because of course, you like walking through this forest of bodies would be insane. It's it's really just grisly. Darrow's immediate immediately afraid of booby traps, but also reflects on how being so removed from the war can simplify it down to until it's mostly just an annoyance that people face you know like on television on the hc what do you make of darrow's reflection on the senate and war and also kind of his thoughts on alice's cruelty
0: i mean it seems like total bullshit honestly like he he says that this was the reason why he left luna and that doesn't make any fucking sense Like just based on how he's always acted I, I, I don't think he's lying about his feelings that he has for the horrors of the front lines of war. It, I mean, clearly it, it's... It's almost more like he's reminding himself. It, y- not that... Yeah, uh, and but I'm not- he's, he's trying to make his own decisions more meaningful than they were. He's trying to He's trying to apply these things that he's seeing as reasons for why he went forward with things, but like let's not forget that this war and this specific battle is because he left Luna right like yes things would still go sideways and shit would still happen they would still be at war but this specific battle does not happen if he doesn't leave Luna so we can't cite this as the reason why he left Luna
1: i i think it's an extrapolation in a way I, um i don't i don't but, think it is
0: i i think it's him trying to justify his actions and trying to to put the blame on the senate for the horrors that he's caused yes he's probably sick of the senate's abstraction of the front line but he left to continue this war his goal for sure is to end the war like that's that's true he's always talked about wanting to end the war but that's the point of war in general Nobody goes to war to make war continue. They go to war to end the war. Like that's just Mm -hmm. what war is, right?
1: I, PJ, I 100% agree with you, and I am, I am with you on. I think on the side of of Darrow in the way that he kind of thinks about the sort of the Senate and sort of their removed nature. And I think you're right that this is kind of a another justification in Darrow's action, and in some ways inability to accept the consequences of his actions because mm-hmm. the reality is is that this may not have happened had the peace gone through he may have been able to withdraw the troops and give them mercury and while that may have been a bad long-term strategic move at the very least he would have saved people and yada 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 there, there the list goes on of of mental gymnastics that we can do outside of the story that may have happened And I think by and large, this is Darrow trying to create or rather, I think in some ways, successfully creating a lens in which he he is giving himself a reason as to why he continues to fight this way. I think in a very stoic way, it's important to in the sense of stoicism and whatever that what the iron gold stand for. I think it's important for him to contemplate the past, but to be in the here and now. And this actually feels like a strange moment where he's he's going against that and he's justifying things when by and large he doesn't need to this is an immediate cruelty you want to stop the cruelty you don't need to justify it as an extrapolation of what the people back at home see
0: do you think it's a justification to himself then
1: oh entirely he is entirely justifying this to himself this is a lie that he's casually telling himself not a lie but like a half truth okay i love darrow love love the man to pieces absolutely a phenomenal character but also it's important to recognize that a he has been the number one liar to us through all of the povs <laughs> and he's the only one i think that's actually lied to us through the povs and b that that makes us have to ensure that we question all of his decisions at least a little bit at least a little bit everything that he says has to have this tone of what do you really think behind it right Darrow quickly discovers a festoon of different things happening, going on in Angelia, a pathogen that made men tear each other apart, the potentially booby-trapped men on poles, and finally, an overloading reactor. The Howlers barely escape, the explosion, and the bodies of the forest are all but destroyed in the rolling wave of destruction. They are destroyed. They're obliterated. And this is sort of the cruelty of war against the society remnant. Atlas seems to be thinking and playing things just like Darrow might have long ago this is exactly
0: something that darrow would have done this is a rube goldberg machine that (laughs) darrow would have set up Mm -hmm. like absolutely like this this is straight out of his playbook and i'm I'm sure he's jealous he didn't think of it
1: (laughs) i don't think you're wrong for the (laughs) record that laugh was not like a that was not a that was not a decrying laugh that was a yeah Darrow just isn't quite I don't think Darrow's gone quite that far yet but I don't think he's that far off either (laughs) like that's I mean you don't have to look further than what he was doing with Apollonius the entire idea of freeing Apollonius is to put it through people in jeopardy in the same way so it's just you know it's it's hard to hard to even consider or think about yeah yeah it's also worth noting here that in the original script I um, misplaced Ajax and Atlas here and that is very easy to do
0: yeah, when I first read that, I, I made a little comment. Ajax slash Atlas is the new Harmony slash Holiday. It's even worse because there's son,
1: son and father. And then the legions fall. The plans have all come into place, and Darrow sends off to leave, lead the fight at the Children, at Pan, between the two maps. This is where I think actually the map becomes very important because this can get very confusing very quickly. And oh my god, fuck, dude, does this book get so big as the this war escalates in this moment. We've been rolling this slow ball of dung momentum for so long, and dung now that momentum. shit is rolling downhill, picking up more as it keeps rolling down the shit pile, and ship against ship against shit, just like you said.
0: Yep, yep, it's, it's pretty true. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so fucking excited. This sort of moment of chaotic restructuring of the plan... The comms, the organization, fucking everything. It's just satisfying. It's just (laughs) satisfying to read. It's terrifying for Darrow. And putting myself in the the situation, it's absolute mayhem. But it is bonkers how crazy, like, happy it makes me feel to read it. It is just so, so well written. I love it.
1: I've, uh, I've mentioned this to you off air a number of times, but I, I absolutely have wanted to reach this kind of point in the series and to get to kind of these sort of cruxes, these high moments. And the series is full of a lot of them that go uh, somewhat uh, occasionally unparalleled, but they, oh my God, is this not incredible and in some ways better than some of the same emotions that you might get out of cinema. I can't think of moments that roll this momentum forward for me so hard that I like stay gripped to my seat in the same kind of way outside of some like horror movies, which require that. But yeah, I don't know. Like just what's, what's your thought on, on the medium of reading again, coming back in with the series as the example,
0: this book specifically or this, the series specifically and Pierce Brown's writing in general makes it really hard to imagine action scenes. And I know this is not that, but action scenes, I'm just kind of going off of converting to cinema and the differences between reading and watching. I think because because watching something has to happen in real time, unless you're watching something in slow motion, which has its own place but isn't necessarily great constantly, in reading, you can slow things down without it, without it taking away from the actual action of what's going on. So you get these really in-depth dissertations of what's happening in a, in a razor battle, which happens over the course of like 10 seconds, but mm. it's pages long. So just the, the rate at which information is described is not something that can be done so easily on film. And I think that's what's uh, what's really appealing here, and is what's keeping me <laughs> engaged more than more than a lot of movies and TV shows and what have yous can do. Okay,
1: I was just curious. It was just something that popped into my head right here, and it was like, yeah. mm, how does PJ feel about reading now? But yeah.
0: well, I'm for it. I'm for
1: it. <laughs> and. You know, we kind of we discussed this a little bit already in terms of the organization you'd made mention of. Darrow dishes out the rest of the orders to Severo, or dishes out the orders to Severo, which isn't Severo; it's Rona, and she's of course embarrassed. And Alexander and the rest of the howlers This scene, this moment of pressure preparation for war, is a fantastic one. Hazard Bedlam is called, and all the war just sort of raining down on itself. It's an incredible, incredible moment and one that the Howlers and most of the others know spells their deaths and their dooms. This is not a fight that any one of them can admit or knowingly consider that they might win.
0: The lack of immediate action by the Howlers kind of says a lot in general, but specifically in this passage, there there's a lot more it than this i'm sure but between the lack of morale due to all the shit that's going on between darrow and severo and the leaderships of the republic and just the bleak nature of what's going on in this war like what the fuck are they supposed to do are they supposed to trust darrow in this are they like do they have any actual motivation to listen to him they kind of have to like the the alternative is just sitting there and fucking dying but like, th- this is kind of, as far as I can tell, rock bottom for the Howlers in general.
1: There, There is something interesting here that I think that you kind of keyed into a little bit. There is this sort of... They've been in conflict with the Society Remnant for 10 years. And there is a sort of inevitability almost that that feels apparent in the scene where they're like we were always going to lose there's a surrender there's something natural after darrow had gone missing and sort of retreated and without several has been as has been mentioned and it just feels like a culmination of a decade of like why are like we still haven't beaten them and they're still beating us back and we're going like this is the, the odds are insurmountable in this situation. They've been staring up and like fatiguing, not because of food, not because of wounds, but because they look up and they see their inevitable doom. And it is just, it is insurmountable to them. I think,
0: I mean, is for the older ones specifically for the older mm-hmm. howlers. It's like, I allied myself with this really charismatic dude in high school. And now I'm a 30 something <laughs> person and I'm, at war with the entire society that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that realization has to happen at least sometime with a bunch of those guys. You know? Yeah.
1: With, without a doubt. And and that's why I also think that that follow-up speech, him realizing that all of them are still kind of like staring, looking at him blank and not, being, not having any hope – Darrow gives this kind of rallying cry, which I think is a speech that even rivals Bill Pullman's from Independence Day, um, the president from there. And it's it's a brilliant speech. It's a brilliant moment. And then as the speech finishes, as he's done, the chapter ends with mushroom clouds blooming in the fucking
0: distance. (laughs)
1: Like, oh no! Yeah, Yeah,
0: man. Like, it's an inspiring speech, but that... That inspiration kind of gets trampled by the fact that there are nuclear bombs being <laughs> dropped on the area.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, I know. It's it hurts. It hurts so bad. <laughs>
0: this, this book is so good.
1: This book is so good. I just have to keep reminding myself. This book is so good it really is. Uh, is it? as I get. It's, it's so good. good. It's so good. I as it. I get beaten down by it again.
0: Yeah, it's. Oh, man. That's what makes fuck. it good, though, isn't it?
1: right yep yep it it is he says to himself knowingly all right so chapter 10 lysander the ash rain i think lysander's reflection on the stupidity of bravery and how he's how he pretty much would have been better like growing up as a scholar is kind of a lovely one in a way every frayed nerve every quaking cell screams in horror urging me to crawl out of the tube to escape this insanity. Is a man a coward if he realizes that bravery is just a myth that the old tell the young so they line up for the meat grinder? And I do. Ah, oof. Ooh. Ouch. So good. Good work, Lysander. I,
0: I don't know if I agree with you. I don't know if I agree with you with the good work thing there. That seems kind of like the view of bravery of an unexposed scholar. Bravery in this case. I would say it would be standing tall and fighting for what you believe in, despite knowing that you're in a meat grinder. It's not overcoming the fear of the unknown. It's overcoming the knowledge of the reality of the situation and still fighting for what you believe is right. And uh, it's, it's in, uh, I think his view on bravery is the non warriors view of bravery and what he needs is th- like, like you mentioned before, the the philosopher King's view on bravery, which is kind of the abstraction of the abstraction.
1: Yeah, he should he should almost be to your point. He should almost be viewing it as the necessary meat grinder. And I almost bring this up as a as a how does this make you feel about life sander? kind of a question? Do you think that he's turning the right way? In terms of turning away from the scholarly and towards the warrior? Or do you think that he's still kind of, you know, I mean, what do you, what do you make of Lysander? I
0: guess it depends Given on if it would actually be, if it would be possible to climb out of that t- spit tube, is that a possibility or is it, is he stuck there? Cause I he says, all I there. want to do is climb out. Yeah. I think um, he's stuck. So if he's stuck, then no, it doesn't change my view on him at all. But if he's able to climb out and chooses not to, even though he wants to, mm-hmm. yeah, it changes.
1: Because he chooses to stay, despite he, like ignoring. he either
0: chooses to stay or knows he can't do anything else. It's, sure,
1: sure, yeah,
0: it's dependent on that. Um,
1: yeah, I I think I agree with you. I think that this that this quote actually kind of makes him, in a way, a little bit ignorant of the necessity sometimes of bravery in a number of contexts to solve the problems of humanity against groups. So whenever there are two warring factions, bravery is always important, be it in negotiation or in war.
0: Yeah. I I, I don't know if the term armchair philosopher applies here.
1: <laughs> I think it does. I think I'm with you on that.
0: Yeah. Like, it, it seems like he's trying to be very uh, philosophical about a topic that he knows fuck all about.
1: that's that's definitely fair i agree with you good stuff Mm. so we move on lysander focuses in realizing that he's going to have to survive this drop through the mind's eye and this is of course a tool of focus for him but it's also one that seems to call back memories when he focuses into it what do you think we're going to see with this over the course of the story given its importance and atalantia's desire to know its secrets
0: i think we're going to see a lot more of octavia which is, I think I mentioned this uh, beginning of Iron Gold, end of Morningstar, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's something I really desperately want out of this book series is more information on Octavia and her life. Maybe there's some other time. I don't know. I remember talking about that on air. I think it was Iron Gold. Could have sure. been Iron Gold. Anyway, I think we're going to start seeing some corruption work into Lysander because now he's going to be in sort of a wartime situation and a warrior situation which he's never been in before and we're we're going to see those teachings come to him and those aren't necessarily the teachings that he wants or believes in they might be completely counter what he to to what he believes in but their memories and their thoughts and their meditations I guess at this point so I, I think we'll see a, a little bit of a change in Lysander due to the mind's eye. okay. all right.
1: I love that. I, I love that. I I need to um, I, I really kind of like the component that you're talking about with the way that this corruption might work its way into or I I would even pose maybe work its way out of as Lysander gets to kind of confront his demons potentially as we even see different moments kind of slip in and out of him. I think that there is definitely something there. Mm.
0: I think it's more like old lessons that he never had anything to apply to. Like he he never had a situation to apply these old lessons and they're not necessarily aligned with what he truly believes in, but they're the only lessons he knows. Mm. So counting those, yeah, the, the, the wartime philosophies of Octavia are not necessarily what he wants to achieve. Or wants to strive strive to be. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: Okay. And again, there are few sites in this series that rival that of imagining an iron rain. And the ash rain on Mercury is no fucking different. It is cinematic and beautiful in every way.
0: I I fucking want to see this realized on the screen.
1: God, the rest of that flight down—it's just all riveting. Of course, we've we've already mentioned kind of the cinematic aspects and whatnot. But um do you have any favorite moments?
0: I think the quick maneuver that Lysander pulls when he sees the sort of purple glow of the charging up railgun and like mm. hits his shoulder thruster and like ducks out of the way in time. How many shots? Like forty shots or something like that, or was it hundreds mm-hmm. over the next three seconds?
1: Yeah, that were going through that space. Right? Yeah,
0: this fucking crazy
1: the the one that there there are two different points that get me one is when he's pointing to like pointing his laser to blow up a base so that it can be bombed from orbit and he's beaten to the punch i think by Serafina at the time that's mm-hmm. that's a good moment where it's like ah you're not as fast as the warrior you you little A little pixie and then uh there's the other moment when ajax and him are having conversations and they're like oh the simulators (laughs) it's it's just like oh you're in for a treat and um yeah the whole the whole thing kind of has those those are two my favorite moments from this this entire chapter
0: yeah it's good so good stuff
1: without a doubt cool with that the final chapter of the week chapter 11 darrow red reach this chapter opens with what I think is one of the most metal and awful lines of the entire series. Chapter openers. My army dies. Those three words carry so much fucking weight, given what we've seen.
0: That's a tough thing to say out loud. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh oh dude it's just yeah it's suffering on the page it's suffering in the brain it's suffering as you think about it it's just
0: oh mm.
1: especially because we've been on the other side of this conflict we've watched it all happen did we see it go it's just a wild one mm-hmm. All of these different moments at the Red Reach are portrayed and bonus art provided in the sub-press edition. And man, is that artwork absolutely beautiful. The whole escape scene with the necromancer just has this like manic energy made manifest that I absolutely love. Love here.
0: Yeah, you you well, posted uh, the, uh, the link or a link to the uh, actual artwork. Dude, <laughs> this shit's fucking dope this looks so fucking cool
1: oh man it is absolutely insane the way that that looks and it just makes me like wish for the eventual series you know like this gives a painting of that imagination of what what exactly is going on in the scene that we're flying by and bull beautiful
0: yeah i think we'll we'll put a link to that somewhere probably in the show for sure We'll probably like post, uh, can we post links on Instagram? No, I don't think we can. can We we?
1: can't post the link, but I can share the photo with credit. There we go. We'll
0: probably maybe do that. I don't know.
1: Regardless, if you haven't seen it, go look it out. Red Reach, Sam Burley. That's what you're looking for from Dark Age. My God, the battle, the scene, the sacrifice of the blues, the gearing up, the discussion of the Arcosians, Widow's sons. The Drakenjager beasts. What a moment this fucking is! Like, I, like I said previously, we've got this shit dung ball that's been rolling downhill since the beginning of this book, and we are picking up terminal velocity. I honestly don't have other words for how good this fucking chapter is.
0: Yeah, th- this is seriously the best chapter of any book I've ever read. Ever. This I mean, like, is, this is my favorite chapter of all time. This is so fucking good. Uh, how,
1: how can you expect us to like try to get specific on the insanity that is called away the pilot dodging and ducking and Darrow jumping in the way and taking bullets to save him. Uh, there's just, there, there are just so many different fucking moments that are brilliantly written over the course of just a couple of pages. And, uh, uh, mm, ah,
0: bruh. yep. Don't make me choose. Yeah. I mean, all right. Think about it like this. He has a reputation for being just such a great pilot, right? Mm-hmm. He's cheating. <laughs> How so? He is the ship. <laughs>
1: well, that's the blues are always cheating.
0: I mean, but all right. Imagine this. You are a NASCAR racer. <laughs> And you have this telepathic connection with your car Mm -hmm. and you can basically just be on the field with these other cars that don't have the same like telepathic connection as you do. You're going to fucking win. It's not going to be fair, (laughs) but it's also not fair to say you're the best driver of all time, right?
1: Well, I I would back up just a bit and say that most of the people in Rip Wings are probably blues. Like blues mm. are pilots by all account. But just to just to kind of feed into your point a little bit, I, the moment that you said NASCAR racer and car, my brain went cars. I am Lightning McQueen. <laughs> I am Lightning McQueen, <laughs> and I can I can't help but imagine you know <laughs> eh, that little sure that little bit that little moment. But I mean, yeah, yeah,
0: it's basically like that. <laughs>
1: I'm uh, I'm with you. Okay. Um, yes,
0: you're right. Everybody else is doing it too, so it's fine.
1: Lots of lots of people are doing it too. I found the comparison when when talking about the of Hallway. I found the comparison where it's like in in the atmosphere, this thing can run out anything. In space, this thing can outrun anything. Down here in the atmosphere, this is a fucking fat cow holler. God, <laughs> like, it's so bad. Yeah, and so that's where I find all the different moments of tension coming out where they have like the flares flying out of the back of the ship. And there's all of this, I
0: said it earlier, this manic energy and Oh my God. Fuck. So good. Mm. I mean, it makes sense in space. You don't have to worry about aerodynamics at all. No, all you have to do, all you have to worry about is like thruster thrusters straight up. That's all you have to worry about. The amount of thrusters and the, in the directions. But yeah, well, well,
1: which the thrusters are placed yeah you you weren't not saying that it makes sense
0: that those are two different things that you have to
1: equate it's fucking brilliant so and then we there's just obviously there's so much to talk about in this chapter but i want to jump to the omega atomic and the sort of mid speech that darrow is giving to all of these people that he knows going to die there's this liquidation of an entire army, this entire council, the entire Red Reach, destroyed, and that poor fucking Red trapped in Darrow's starshell as well. Oh. This this whole section is insanity. It is fuck. Yeah,
0: yeah. In in the moment that I was reading that, I really thought that somebody would like take a razor and amputate the Red's arm and like get him out of there. I man, I'm so sad for the dude, but I don't know from the perspective of like viewing, viewing what's happening—the spectacle of reading this whole fucking horrifying scene. I'm kind of glad that he stayed trapped. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Like, but we, because we got to see him, like listen to Darrow as he gave that just amazing death speech. And we got to see him liquefy. <laughs> like, I don't know. It was just so well-written. It's fucking ah, I, horrifying, but it was so well-written.
1: I think the other piece of this that's really important and interesting, too, is that, like, not only is he is he giving that speech, right? Not only is he kind of giving that speech to the council, but it feels as though, given kind of the eye movements of Darrow and where he's staring and looking, that he's also giving the speech to the Red. And I think that that is an incredibly humanizing moment for Darrow where he is realizing the cost of this war in live time because of sort of the moments. And, uh, oh, Mm -hmm. it is incredible writing. The sort of explosion that liquefies him, that burns out the shield that Rona has, that does all these different things is just absolutely fucking nuts. This is a brilliantly written moment. And again, like you said, it is definitely one of my favorite chapters in any book ever.
0: Yeah. It's so, so well done.
1: (sighs) And then after (laughs) the the aftermath immediately of the nuclear weapon... We get a truly uproarious rallying cry of the Reds in their Draconnyagos. the hell divers repurposed into something they can man just as well five thousand full metal gods ready to hold the wine with Rona riding in the black beast and back.
0: I just have to preface this. you're going to absolutely fucking hate me because I'm going to step on the dick of the description of the Draconnyaggers. I think of it like metallic Bowser, <laughs> okay okay. <laughs> okay. So well, it's described as having a spiky backpack. It's super big and boxy. It's mm-hmm. metal. Instead of a head, it's got a cockpit between the shoulders, just like Bowser's head. Yeah. Uh, the only really difference is that this thing has six arms and Bowser has two. <laughs> is it is it six arms or six joints? It says it said uh, six arms. I think.
1: I thought I thought that the arms articulated in six joints. But it might be six no, arms. I, I, I think I it do... said six
0: arms and um, there are like guns on the elbows or something like that.
1: Something like that. Yes. Uh, how did I skip this? I need to mention this before we resolve your Drakenjager comment. The voice that found me in the Jackal's prison tomb. Reaper, Reaper, Reaper. Look what you have done. Look what you are. In your shadow, nothing can survive. Fucking brilliant. And I don't have a full answer on the other question,
0: but. I mean, it wasn't I, a question. It's, there's just like 40-meter tall Bowsers running around with six arms. <laughs> okay.
1: All right. So a lot of people question this, actually. There is no definitive answer, which is not great. Drogen Yagger's arms have six joints. The precise nature of the joints is unclear. This could mean six elbows, a shoulder, and no wrist. Or it could mean four elbows, a shoulder, and a wrist. Or it could mean I any combination of the wrist-like or elbow-ish arms. joints. It does not say arms. Uh, its weaponry included multiple cannons, though mounted at the elbows, as well as gigantic iron cleavers. So it is it is a multi armed thing, but it is not six arms. They have they have different joints though, which is weird. The gun joints, to me, are probably the reason that you have six joints is so that you can actually articulate the guns, right?
0: In a way, yeah, probably.
1: It's, that's the most logical thing to me anyway point being i don't disagree with the rest of your bowser head description i think that i think that bowser's actually fairly close <laughs> in a strange way <laughs> reading this also got me to uh, revisit and look up to see if it still existed an old video game series that I played a long time ago called front mission and i played a shit ton of front mission four. and sadly they haven't released a game since 2009 it's a square enix property so but mm. i'm upset it's one of my favorite turnstile games Anyway, lots of metal robots in that. Reminded oh. me of that for whatever reason.
0: Metal robots are awesome.
1: The best. Mostly, Most of them are metal robots.
0: I mean, actually. I think of these gen- generally, like when the description comes around, I think of them as uh, Titans from Titanfall.
1: Yes. Yeah, I would agree. Especially after playing Titanfall 2 now, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the final kind of point here. I just want to bring this up: is the the sort of stomping nature? I talked about this at the beginning of Iron Gold, and sort of the way that those small clods happen as he's climbing up the stairs. We then get this giant, massive rallying cry, as I discussed, where Darrow says, "Are we ash?" and we get a boom, boom from the clanking, <laughs> and there's just this fantastic cacophony of uniting forces that happens underneath Darrow's banner. And at the very end of the chapter, we get a, a final kind of little, little moment to set kind of the scene here. Black clouds rise. Lightning shatters the sky. Atalanta' has shattered our jaw with her fist, with her first punch. Now it's our turn. I lift my sling blade for the Republic, for Mars. And fuck, dude, this time, this time reading that for whatever reason, hit me so hard I totally welled up, and I totally let a tear go, and I, it just makes me want to f- have like Darrow. It just makes me want Darrow, the the Auger Legion, the Hell Diver Legion to tear them the fuck apart for what they've done.
0: Yeah, man. First of all, let me commend you for the stopping point of this section because it felt like the end of a book. <laughs> it did. Fair like, point. It, it felt like this could be the like stopping point as a like and cliffhanger of a book. Sure. Uh um, Yeah,
1: a novella for sure. I I feel that. I understand.
0: E- even if be it was kind of, of a an alternative way that Iron Gold went if it continued on with the story a little bit and ended here, I'd be perfectly happy with that. <laughs> but fuck dude, I'm so pumped here. Like <laughs> I was so ready to keep going. <laughs> I think you're going to find a lot
1: of that in this book. (laughs) I
0: I was talking to you earlier on, like, just on a phone call earlier today where I was talking about, like, mail or something like that. Yeah, getting the mail onto to our patrons. Yep, yep, that's what it was. And just off the cuff, I'm like, dude, this is the best book I've ever read in the world. If this was just (laughs) empty pages from here on out, I would still see it as, like, my favorite book of all time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) this is... I think actually what I, I said was if it's just dog shit for the rest of the book, it'll still be my favorite because of the first couple sections,
1: so. which is in in a way like that is a massive relief to hear because I have to present all these things like, I hope you like this PJ, because if you don't, it's going to make for a really bad podcast. <laughs> like,
0: Well, I mean, we talked extensively about the Avengers for an entire podcast. It's true. It's true. Um, That's enjoyable. If you'd like to join our bartender tier on Patreon, you can listen to me rant about the Avengers for two hours. (laughs) Yeah, so like (laughs) we can make it work, but this is so fucking good. I
1: this book is so good. I don't. I can't. It's. Yep. It is. Yep. Yep. It is. So with that. Do you have any other comments on this section that you want to Oh man that you want to make?
0: So many, but not specifically. Like I just want to gush about how much I like it. <laughs> All right. Sweet. So, so, yeah, I think we're good there.
1: With that, we move into your predictions. You've got two. We have none from people submitting them this week, but we hope to have more. Please submit them. Lean towards the end of the book because we have a couple in the middle. I would love to hear your predictions that you'd like PJ to make for the end of the book and the next book send them in to us please and thank you please so do. your predictions now though
0: uh what's that email address that you can send in if you're not following us on socials you can send it into words words whiskey pod
1: nope words, words whiskey and whiskey, pod whiskey is show at gmail.com social
0: yep that's it yep words and whiskey show at gmail.com yep anyway uh my first one does this little skirmish end before the end of the next section? And I'm thinking no. I'm thinking
1: it's going to go a little bit longer than that. All right. That's a, that's a fair question. Yep. yep. So <coughs> what's uh, what's your next one?
0: In this battle slash section. I think, uh, do we want to make a specification on that?
1: You can call it out how you'd like. So you're saying in this battle in or this next battle. section. So, meaning at the end of the liberation of Mercury, or the the battle of Mercury, not the liberation, but the, the battle of Mercury, or it's either, in the it's next either
0: part, the end of this battle that's happening okay. actively right now, or at the end of the next section that we're reading until. Okay, all right. I'm going section because then there's no ambiguity on whether or not it might happen later. It's got to be sure. by the end of the section. Okay. Who lives and who dies. <laughs>
1: And who tells their story? I'm sorry. I just had to do the Hamilton thing right uh, inside. Okay. Um, well.
0: Um, rolling right through that. <clears throat> That's uncomfortable. But what? I think Darrow lives and loses all of the other Howlers except for Calloway. And he kind of has to live with the weight of all that. Rona dies, but kills Lysander. Alexander and Thraxa both survive, but barely ajax survives seraphina dies atlas survives atalantia survives orion survives pytha dies somehow and we get a really strange brief glimpse of the life of lyria and she dies of a sudden aneurysm after being tortured (laughs) well
1: That sounds like a very interesting list, uh, especially the killing off a POV and a <laughs> second POV. <laughs>
0: we don't know just... that that's a second POV yet.
1: Well, that's fair. Uh, all, that it, well, uh, all that I'm saying is like Lyra was a POV in the previous books, so killing her off this way is, yeah, well, fair enough. Lysander, dead at the hands of Rona. Okay, all right. Yep. So with that, we go into next week. Next week, folks, we are going to be reading chapters 12 through 17 that's gonna be pages in the hardcover 93 through 143 i am so fucking excited
0: this is going to end part one so we're going to the end of part one yes or are we going through that no we're going to the end of part one so once you finish part one stop there and then listen to our next episode
1: before part two yep yep So that's where we're going to leave you for this week.
0: Thank you, of course, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, as we always thank you because you are so much more important, but um, this is what you get. You get a shout out on our podcast um, (laughs) for helping keep our show's lights on. Check out all of the links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our website, our socials, all in one convenient spot. Uh,
1: yeah, the, the convenient spot, of course, is within the show notes, but it's also within the link tree that Tim built us. It's fantastic. If you haven't les- left us a review on iTunes, we'd absolutely love that. Leave us a five-star review. We might read it out on the podcast. That would be fantastic. Uh, above and beyond that, our Patreon, we we host a bunch of other content that we've actually talked about over the course of this show. Join us there, and we would love to have you. The Discord is alive and well, talking about this book, movies, and a lot of the other things that we all love and enjoy
0: as far as getting me to say anything to or about crossland leaving a five-star review is a great way to do that
1: (laughs) are you suggesting that people can leave us a five-star review and they can write slander about me in there (laughs) Uh, it's not
0: slander if it's true
1: (laughs) all right all right fair enough so thank you all so much for the support it really means the world to us we're of course stoked and cannot wait to see you next week